Welcome to The Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as I do each and every week. This is episode 114. I hope all of you are having a great week out there. We're having a good week over here at the Drum Shuffle World Headquarters. Uh, Fall is officially here. Uh, I did survive the fishing trip, uh, and I'm uh, very sad to report, so did all of the fish from last week. Uh, They just did not cooperate with us, but I had a great time hanging out with my brothers from the band Funnel uh, and got some much-needed R&R. We have a fantastic episode for you this week. I'm going to be joined by the multi-talented Patrick Ferguson right after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the U.S., Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center, or heart, of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, uh, I'm about to be joined by my buddy, Patrick Ferguson, uh, Patrick is probably most well known for his work with the band Five Eight out of Athens, Georgia. Um, just a fantastic band, and we talk a lot about their history and Patrick taking some time away from that band. He also plays with a really cool Japanese kind of punk rock band called Pinky Dinky Poodle. Just absolutely the best name in all of rock and roll, if you ask me. And uh, right before the pandemic, he spent some time out on the road with Mike Mills from R.E.M. and the legendary Chuck Lavelle. Uh, So really cool stuff. He's got an amazing resume. But he is also, to my knowledge, he'll be the first fellow podcaster that I've had on the drum shuffle. And he is the producer and host 
of Crash and Ride podcast. And if you haven't checked it out, you should. Uh, the podcast deals with musicians who are suffering from anxiety, depression, uh, trauma, substance abuse, or have suffered from those things. And it offers a message of experience, strength, and hope for others. And it's very powerful. It's it's wonderful. Um, and we do talk quite a bit about that. It's just really a, a great drummer hang for an hour and 20 minutes. I know you're going to get a lot out of it. You're probably going to cry. You're probably going to laugh. But I know that you're going to be entertained above all else. So please help me welcome to the drum shuffle, Patrick Ferguson. Patrick, how you doing, brother? How's things going? Things are, I mean, you know, <laughs> good for quarantine. <laughs> it's, man, you know, no matter who listens to my podcast, they're going to think like for the last six months when they're listening to this 20 years from now, they're going to be like, God, that stuff went on forever because every guest, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, it's ridiculous at this point. I have been doing at the end, at the beginning of every episode of Crash and Ride, my podcast, um, I do a little. Today is September fourteenth, twenty twenty. One hundred and eighty-six days of quarantine. Yeah, because yeah, I know man. that at some point, hopefully, people will listen back to this and be like, "Man, that was a grim time." Glad that's over. You know? Yeah, yeah, man. It's you know, it's just it's so brutal for our industry. You know, I mean, you and I are lucky that we we do have some sort of creative outlet with our podcasts, right? Mm -hmm. And. That's good, but man, I'm ready to play a show and I know everybody else is. And even though I don't rely on that for, you know, my main source of income, so many people do. And yeah, totally. it's just brutal right now. Brutal, brutal, brutal. Are you practicing? Yeah, man, as much as I can, you know, um, I, of course, like everybody else, I live in a subdivision, you know, mm. um, the, the neighbors don't like it very much. And, you know, I haven't spent, you know, a ton of money to, um, uh, you know, soundproof my house. Now, you know, I've got my little podcast studio in my, yeah. you know, in my office, but I, you know, I can't put the bottom kit in here and just rip. You know what I'm <laughs> no. saying? <laughs> no, I do. I have not been practicing drums as much. I've been playing a lot of guitar, which I'm terrible at, but I don't think anybody enjoys it more than I do. Yeah. Um, and I've been, um, I had a show this week. I did a streaming show. There's a Japanese punk rock band called Pinky Doodle Poodle uh, that are over here from Tokyo and they got their visa cleared. We had three practices and COVID started and we were supposed to do a national tour. I was supposed to be on tour. I was supposed to be in Europe right now with them, actually. Oh, wow. And, um, but their visa was approved. Uh, instead of three years, they got 18 months because of the state of the State Department now, and they're just sitting there burning daylight with, like, no shows. And so there's a local bar that has a streaming setup. So we did a – I wore a mask. The lead guitar player wore a mask. The girl who sings was maskless, but everyone else, sound man – the cameraman and the owner of the bar were the only other people in the room. And we streamed a show with everybody all masked up and uh, they made a little money. You know, they had a little virtual tip jar. Cool. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, just last week, you know, I started hearing rumblings from the community like Facebook is starting to crack down on, you know, live performances, apparently as of October 1st. I don't know 
what the hell they think we're all supposed to do. But I, you know, um, my God, man, I mean, are you trying to kill the arts or, you know, what exactly is the agenda here? You, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't understand why I, I've sort of seen that go by. And I thought if I dig into this and have one more thing to be angry about in 2020, <laughs> I just like, you know, I've, have you ever seen that uh, picture uh, from the Middle East and there's a donkey and it's uh, it's yoked to a, a little cargo wagon and there's so much stuff in the wagon that all four of the donkey's feet are up off the ground like the, yes. the yokes are pointed skyward. That's yes. where my anger level is right now. <laughs> dude you and me both man so overloaded and frustrated and angry all the time that i just um i needed that show i'm glad i played it with a heavy rock band you know yeah man well first of all you know i i am not familiar with their material but you know i saw that in your bio line and they have the greatest band name of all time i think it is the most japanese rock band name ever pinky doodle poodle I mean, that is perfect. So, yeah. well, you know, it, it sucks for them that, you know, they get their visa approved, which is surprising to me because, you know, they're from a different country, so they must be here to kill us all. But, um, man, that know, process was brutal. Oh, I'm sure. They to, the, the first, the first, so they were here before they had a label in Buffalo, um, that got their first visa and then didn't tell them, like forgot to communicate to them, like clock's ticking. So they had a three-year visa. And then the last year of it, they were they were like playing catch up because they didn't get over here until they only had like 13 months left on the first visa. That label, some of the kindest people I've ever met and just absolutely lovely, but maybe not the most organized cats. So like, yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to run anybody's reputation into the ground, but like they, (laughs) Biggie Little Poodle loves to tour. That's all they want to do. They want to play shows and they should have been here for the whole three years, but they're only here for like 13 months. Then that visa ran out. They had to go back to Japan. And then I hired an immigration lawyer on their behalf in Atlanta. And that whole process stretched out over months and they had to get denied on their first request and then had to appeal. And, and then they only got 18 months and now they're here and the clock is running on the 18 months and they're just <laughs> can't stuck do anything. Yeah. Man, it's just, Stinks. it's just bad timing. Um, well, so as is the tradition on the drum shuffle, uh, mm-hmm. let's, let's give everybody a little bit of your background and, you know, I, I think when we start talking about some of your projects, uh, people are immediately going to be like, oh, yeah, OK, got it. You know, yeah. Um, but are you a native of the Athens, Georgia area originally or, or wh- where is home base for you? Well, I so now I, I currently live outside of Athens in the country. I really okay. like living in the country because I'm originally from the country. Uh, I'm from a tiny town in North Carolina called Eden. And, OK, uh, you know, my grandpa was a postman. My grandma was a was a textile mill worker, and my mom came up from fairly humble Appalachian, uh, you know, beginnings and became an opera singer, which is the craziest thing. Oh wow! Uh, she got a scholarship to the University of North Carolina for voice, and then within two years had already been like was had an audition scheduled for the Met in New York City, and um, was was gonna and, and she met my dad and they got married pretty young. My dad went to Vietnam. He was a Air Force officer and and uh, 
And so, you know, we bounced around. My dad got back from Vietnam for years. My mom eventually gave up opera because I don't know if you've known a lot of conservatory musicians, but like I've known people that went all the way through colleges. Uh, a girl I used to date who played cello, you know, did four years of cello scholarship under one of the best cello teachers in the world, a guy named Charles Starkweather. Um, wait a minute. Is Charles Starkweather the Texas Tower gunman? <laughs> no, that was Charles Whitman. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, so it was Starkweather. Um, okay. And uh, he's this amazing cello teacher, and she played, you know, six to eight hours a day every day for the entire time she was in college. Graduated and had all these auditions lined up, and then was just like, nah. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it man. stopped. I, I'm dealing with that in my own family. You know, I've got mm-hmm. a... I've got a, a soon to be 16 year old daughter who is in ballet conservatory and mm-hmm. she eats, breathes, sleeps ballet. And, yeah. you know, she was home, you know, conservatory closed down, you know, spring semester, she was home and she was still doing, you know, six, eight hours a day of ballet. Then her summer wow. break came and she was like, I, I got to do private lessons and, you know, uh, a summer program. And, I, you know, it worries me. I, I say, you're going to burn yourself out. You know, you're, you're going to get this world class ballet education. And then when it comes time to actually make your twenty two thousand dollars a year, <laughs> you know, <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> as a professional ballet dancer, you're going to be fried on it. You, you, you yeah. know what I'm saying? So, yeah, no, I do. I mean, there's only so many seats and so many orchestras in America. You know? Yeah. Uh, and and the same for professional dancers it's a funnel just like just like college sports to pro sports and you know and i think a lot of people start eyeballing that funnel and they just don't like my mom i don't think had the faith in her own ability uh she was incredibly talented but you know when you're appalachian and you're going to auditions and there are people who were raised in new york city who Mm -hmm. like you know who's like Godfather is the former roommate of Leopold Stokowski or whatever. Like you start to feel, well, you're, you're from, you're from the South. You're from Kentucky. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, sure I do. Yeah. There's a certain amount of like, so uh, are you here to like change the air conditioning filters or something? I heard your accent. I assumed you were working class. Like, you know, like it's just part of being Southern. And um, (laughs) for my mom, this was the seventies, you know, and um, and then there was a year where all these people that she had gone through conservatory with uh, died. One guy overdosed. One committed suicide. One was in a drunk driving car accident. And like, you know, it was the seventies. It was a fairly hedonistic time. People were partying pretty hard, and all of a sudden, man, bam, bam, bam! Like four or five of her friends died all at once. And she was like, "I'm going to be a military wife and a mom, and I'm going to stay at home, get my master's in education, and uh, just go be a music teacher." Yeah. So I I understand the decision. I know it was really hard for her. It was hard for her for the rest of her life. So. Yeah, man, the the shots you don't take is the one you wonder about. You know, you know, I mean, I I feel that pressure too. you know, like I I was never willing to sleep in my car to try to make it in the music industry. And so many of my contemporaries did. And, mm-hmm. and, and did, <laughs> you know what I mean? I could and, tell you that the third seat in an Econo line is the one. You got <laughs> oh, the, you got the, yeah, for sure, you got man. The, the front two seats are bucket 
It sucks to sleep in those. And the second one is a little short because the side doors are right there. But the third one, man, you can really stretch out. Yeah. If you if you start feeling like you're getting to the middle of a gig and nobody's popped up for a place to stay, start eyeballing that third seat the second you can get out. <laughs> that's my that's, that's my winning strategy. That's that's <laughs> very true. And I, you know, I, I mean, I, all those hours of playing Tetris on the Nintendo Game Boy pays off when you start loading the trailer too. You oh know? <laughs> man, totally the pack job. The yeah. Dan Horowitz. So I've been in this band five eight. I moved to Athens in 19, I guess, 89. And by 1990, was in this band, 5-8. And I've been in the band off and on. There was a little nine-year lost weekend in the middle there, but I've been in, back in the band longer than I was in it the first time. Tian Horowitz, the bass player, is the ultimate van pack guy. Like, you've you've never seen anything like it. Well, and there's, you know, you guys had, I mean... I, Dare I say, you guys came as close to being super huge as you can get without being super huge. I mean, is that a fair statement? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But let me just make sure that people know that I feel like in many ways we dodged a bullet there. But let's back up. So (laughs) because that is something I want to get to. But you got to kind of understand where the band came from first. So, yeah. My dad eventually uh, comes back from Vietnam, starts looking for a job, goes into the reserves and starts teaching college in Columbus, Georgia. So that's where I spent most of my childhood and adolescence. And, and Columbus is a, is a bare knuckle town. It's a military base and mill town. And then Phoenix City's right across the river. And Phoenix City was the Vegas of the Southeast because all of the soldiers from Benning would go there to gamble and consort with uh, ladies of 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 low reputation and <laughs> to drink bootleg alcohol uh, during prohibition and to use illegal drugs. And all of this was under the table and Phoenix City was a big organized crime town and there was a lot of violence there. And um, it, uh, growing up there, the shadow of that was still sort of very long. And um, I was just telling somebody last week, I uh, I have two friends I went to high school with who were on death row still. And the guy that I bought all my drum heads from who had a music store in Columbus was shot to death in a Coke deal. Like Columbus was, was rough. And um, so I bounced out of there uh, having already been in a couple of like, you know, high school bands. It's like, I've always had this duality in my life as a player. I either was like crossing the railroad tracks, going into South Columbus, which is kind of the, the, it, there's a big black middle class in Columbus because of the retired NCO Corps from the military base. And so there was a pretty thriving funk, jazz, blues, R&B scene south of Winton Road in Columbus. South Columbus was predominantly African-American. Lots of gospel, lots of funk, lots, you know, lots of opportunity to play cool in the gang covers, Gap Band, Prince. And then north of Macon Road is kind of lily white and has a lot of the baggage of the old South. And so there were a lot of like high school punk bands. So I was constantly crossing that, like playing both. And, but all those clubs were pretty gritty. I was a fighter uh, and uh, was not, you know, just like carrying a lot of the weight of the sort of cargo cult of masculinity in America and got to Athens, Georgia, which is a completely different scene. And, and wasted a couple of years walking around by chest thrown out, thinking I was Billy Badass, and and um, 
Athens wasn't like that. You know, Athens was arty. Um, you know, there's an enormous art school attached to the University of Georgia. Lots of painters, sculptors, writers, poets, people like that were starting bands. Maybe they weren't like the most um, relentlessly chops driven musicians, but were creating great art. You know, B-52s, REM, Guadalcanal Diary, um, Pylon, the Method Actors. Like that was the Athens music scene. So it took me a little while <laughs> To kind of adapt to not being kind of an asshole. And, um, <laughs> but I found 5-8, and um, they were my favorite band before I joined. And they were kind of a power pop punk band at a time when that was really like outsider music. It was before Nirvana broke. And um, Mike Mantioni, the guitar player and singer in 5.8's guitar sound, sounded like Bob Mould from Husker Du, which was my favorite rock band at the time. And I was drawn to that band and loved that band and saw every show. And then their drummer was in this terrible industrial accident. And his leg was crushed by 3,000 pounds of sheetrock, shifted suddenly in a warehouse where they were loading these big pallets of, of gypsum wallboard. And he got caught and pinned. And, and, and his leg was pretty much destroyed. And... 5A didn't want to stop playing, so they asked me to sub until Mike was better. And then when Mike came back, his heart wasn't really in it. And he only, a couple of months later, he announced that he was going to, he'd fallen in love with this girl who had auditioned for the band. They were told they needed to add a guitar player. This beautiful girl showed up with a pink Stratocaster. And she wasn't a super great player, but she was absolutely bewitchingly beautiful. And Mike fell for her, and she got a job as a stewardess and moved to Boston to work for Delta and off Mike went and I got the gig. So I've been in five, eight pretty much on and off ever since. So yeah. and we well, did it, 200 shows a year from 1991 to 1996, just crisscrossing the country. Well, and you know, you guys, um, I, I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but uh, you know, some of, my listeners, you know, most of my listeners are obviously geographically fairly close to both of us, you know, mm -hmm. but we have listeners, you know, all over the world, quite frankly, and they yeah. may not understand when I say the Athens, Georgia music scene during that time, you know, the mid 80s to the mid 90s, um, maybe not the mid 90s, but in the late 80s, you know, a lot of folks referred to Athens as Seattle of the South because yeah. there was so much music coming out of there. You That's know, true. if you wanted to go start a band in a big city and get some attention, you know, your choices were New York, Nashville, L.A., Seattle, Athens, Georgia, maybe Austin, mm -hmm. Texas. But it was really just a hotbed of talent coming out of there. And, and you guys were no exception to that. I mean, you know, reading press from back then, you know, you guys were compared to the Beatles for Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say that we had as, uh, as profound a set of pathologies as the Beatles did. Um, <laughs> right on. You know, it was right a pretty on. intense group of guys. And, um, and we had a lot of uh, just, uh, just an axe to grind with the world for sure. I don't know what it was about Athens that made it such a successful music scene either. Like I couldn't 
put my finger on what exactly was in the water or whatever. But I think that it was just that somebody did it and everyone realized that it was possible. My wife is a professional theater person uh, who's now a theater professor at a at a historically black college in central Georgia, which is an enormous commute in non-COVID times, but now she's teaching remote. But a lot of her students are first generation college students. And she says to them, you want to be an actor? Go be an actor. Somebody's got to get paid to do that job. Might as well be you. Right. And so she's created a kind of pipeline from her college into the film industry in Atlanta. And, a lot of her former students are now either successful actors or they're working on sets or they, 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 they work in post doing editing because people just have to realize that it's possible. You know, Titus from, uh, what's that show about the um, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. So Titus, one of her students. Oh, that's awesome, man. This guy, Michael Stiggers, just finished playing Simba on Broadway before COVID happened. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's one of her students. She's taught a lot of incredibly successful actors. And her whole thing is somebody's got to get paid to do it. It might as well be you. So by the time I got to Athens, the B-52s had already been just punted up the pop charts from Athens. And that was just a bunch of art students. Like they weren't. And that was sort of what was the thing that made everybody realize that it was possible that a bunch of kids, those two girls who sing those incredible, like two thirds of the Andrews sisters harmonies never had a vocal lesson in their lives. They just taught themselves to do that. Ricky Wilson, the guitar player strung his guitar up with four strings, two on the bottom tuned to a dyad, two on the top tuned to a dyad and created a whole style of guitar, like a post surf new wave guitar style. You know, Fred, the singer, he was a journalism major at university of Georgia. And like, they were like, let's start a band. And, and they did. And they, you know, there was like dancing was illegal in Athens until sometime in the early eighties. Like they played house parties <laughs> and in pastures and then, and they got so good at it that they went to New York city and everybody was like, Oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. And people back in Athens were like, huh, I guess I could do that too. So then limbo district method actors, the Lottie Dawes, like all these bands sort of sprang up and pylon who, if you haven't heard pylon, they're just the most amazing distillation of like the like uh, uh, the, the rhythm section of, of a band like television or or can or noi like kraut rock rhythm section with this like wailing banshee singer and they were this very like art brute amazing band and then pylon inspired a bunch of other guys a painter named michael a guy who worked at a record store named peter uh, two guys that moved up here from uh, from Macon, Georgia, to be rhythm section. They Mike and Bill to start a band, and like that's how REM happened. It just yeah. it just kept happening. Like there's no explanation for it except that people realized it was possible, and that a lot of these people, you know, artists get this reputation. It's like you know you just want to lie around all day and maybe throw some paint at a canvas and be famous, but. Like the REM guys played eight hours a day every day. Yeah. Their work ethic was unbelievable. And so, you know, apply vision, opportunity, and work ethic together, and it's bound to happen. So, 5 8 stumbled into that, right? Yeah. And 
we tried to mimic the REM path to success, which was to just play all the time. So we played 200, 220 shows a year for five or six years. We had a deal with an Atlanta label. That label got bought out and we just went on strike. We're like, we're not recording a note for this label and and actually got released (laughs) from our deal, which was unheard of. It is. We were so angry at that label. We put out three records for them. We had sold 10 or 15,000 of our own self-released cassette. Uh, just like out of the back of the van after shows. And then they put out three records and maybe sold a thousand to 2000 each. And we were really frustrated with that. Cause we were like, we, we're doing better than this and we don't have access to record stores. Yeah. So we left that label and we got signed to, there's a guy named Walter Yetnikoff. Some of your listeners will know who that was, mm-hmm. but there's a book called Hitmen about Columbia records and CBS records in that, 70s and 80s. Walter Yetnikoff was a hitman. And by hitman, I mean he signed Michael Jackson, Bruce Springsteen, The Clash, Elvis Costello. Like he basically built the Columbia Records empire. And then, you know, he was a wild man. Like he was impulsive and, and kind of Dionysian and, and kind of crazy. And when the Japanese uh, bought, when Sony bought CBS Columbia, I think that's how that worked. Um, not exactly sure how CBS fits into all that. And I'm sure there's somebody who's like a music industry historian, like banging on their radio right now, like, no, you idiot. But, um, <laughs> but eventually, Walter Yedikoff was working for the Japanese. And, you know, Japanese business culture is, for the most part, very formal, uh, very based on respect. Uh, based on process. And Walter was a screamer, uh, a desk chair thrower, uh, you know, a thing smasher. And they were like, that's it, out. And so we got signed to Walter Yatnikoff's comeback label called Velvel. And we made one record for them with the unbelievably gifted producer, Ed Stasium, who had done like every other Ramones record and all the first three Talking Heads records and had produced Motorhead and the Smithereens and like a Keith Richards solo record. And somehow we ended up in the studio with this genius and we made what I consider to be probably our best sounding, definitely our best sounding record. Um, I think that some of the writing was better on one later record by 5.8, but we did a record with him called Gasolina. And then Val Val's wheels came off. That was Val Val was Walt Yetnikoff's label and I don't know exactly what happened. I can't really say. But we went out and we kept touring like we had been, 200 shows, 200 plus. And I, I just got burned out and left the band. And because um, they didn't sell any more copies of the record we made with those days, and which isn't on any streaming services either, which sucks because it's really good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, we came right up to the brink. And I think that if Felvel had been able to get the record out on time, because people sort of look back and they go, oh, 90s music, like Sugar Ray and Smashing Pumpkins <laughs> and Nirvana. It's like, when are you ever going to put Sugar Ray, Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana in one basket and call it a genre? <laughs> They're like three completely different bands. And we oh. would have we would have fit right in in that sort of that year of heavy melodic rock between the time Nevermind came out and ish you know like that was kind of our pocket and we had a record ready to go you know but it sat at velvel for a year and a half and in that time 
things changed and it kind of moved, the sound moved out west to the roots of the sort of sublime sound with Sugar Ray and a bunch of RCA bands that had one hit like Vertical Horizon and uh, Lit and like we, we kind of got left behind the kind of confessional power pop post-punk thing that we did ebbed and there was more than one radio programmer who's quietly confided to the band like if this had come out a year and a half ago i would have added it in a heartbeat but it doesn't fit with where the station's gone now so yeah i left the band and started playing sessions which is funny because i'm such a gorilla behind the kit like i'm not a, <laughs> i'm not sort of standard session guy yeah ditto for sure well i mean during that time though <clears throat> you know i mean you could have just told my life story I mean, I seriously, it's almost a carbon copy. You know, I just think it happened for me a couple years after it happened for you. You know, I, the, mm-hmm. the the most successful project I ever played in was Funnel. Um, oh, and, no way. Yeah. Did I know you were in Funnel? Holy shit. So, 98, you know, we're just a bunch of dumb 20-something kids, uh, mm-hmm. one of which happened to go to recording school. We recorded a record in the basement of the house we all lived in. And before we knew it, like we had managers bidding for our services, all these record Mm -hmm. labels. And then as you, you know, you said, you know, the Japanese bought all these labels. It was, you know, kind of a consortium uh, of the Seagram's alcohol company, Mm -hmm. you know, and like one day, you know, I mean, we thought we were going to be signed and be on a world tour, you know, just like next week or next month. I mean, it was going to happen. Right. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all of a sudden we couldn't get a return phone call from anybody at any label because they were all fired. (laughs) Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I just, I just did an interview with Brad Wood for my podcast. And while we were, we talked a lot about the shift in the record industry and what happened. And he produced Exile and Guyville for Liz Fair and then like Veruca Salt, Red Red Beat, Ben Lee, like this insanely long and, and deep resume. Moved out to Los Angeles. And so he's had a kind of a front row seat to the change in the music industry. And his whole thing is like, yes, music made a lot of money. And at some point, like investor groups started to think, oh, that that if, if they're making a lot of money, I want a part of that. Uh-huh. But but record companies aren't like General Motors or Seagram's, as you mentioned, or somewhere there's like a repeatable, predictable revenue model that recurs. You know, like you buy one Camry, 12, those, 12 years later, you buy another Camry. Mm-hmm. You know, like um, rec- bands don't work like that. You know? No. <laughs> record there companies is no- don't work like that. There is no artist development left in the world at all. You know, it it, it used to be, you know, back in the olden days. And when I say olden days, I mean like 20 years ago or 25 years ago. um, You know, you you would start a relationship with an A&R guy at a label Mm -hmm. and he would give you advice. And he would say, you know, here's what you guys need to do, you know, or girls. This is what we want to hear. And then you would go back to the drawing board and maybe do a demo or maybe put yeah. out another independent record or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and they would develop you. I mean, hell, you know, Hootie and the Blowfish, not that, you know, they're some, you know, sacred cow, but Mick Cassinelli at, at Atlantic Records made them sell 20,000 copies 
of their homemade cassette touring up and down the East Coast before he would give them a deal. And when he did, their debut sold 14 million copies in the first 18 months or something. I mean, it's just great. Let's be super straight about something important about Hootie and the Blowfish, though. And this is something that 5'8 learned the hard way. Hootie were the nicest fucking guys in rock and roll. <laughs> There's, I can't find anyone who has a bad word to say about anybody in that band. And I, right on. I, I've done 3,000 live shows in my life. I've played every like pizza place in Johnson City, Tennessee, to you know the the Bass Amphitheater in Fort Worth, like and everything in between. And Hootie are universally loved, like top to bottom. And I and I don't just mean industry people. I mean club owners i mean girls that have had one night stands with members of the band like oh he was so nice <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah i do and and that's that's important yeah. because when it comes down to like people who work at record labels have x hours in the day right they're going to be there for eight hours they're going to spend an hour at lunch so now we're down to seven hours they're going to spend three hours in meetings so like the day is just getting chipped away you know, they smoke, they take another two hours off the clock. So there's like this tiny window where they're going to have time to work and they're going to make a choice between your record and Hootie's record. Yeah. Hootie guys were here last week and they brought everybody donuts and they didn't do it because they were like trying to grease the wheels. They did it because the guys at Hootie are nice fucking guys. Right. (laughs) Right. So you're like, all right, I got to call these 10 radio stations. Am I going to talk about I don't know. Let's talk about a band we know have been really shitty to people like 5-8. Are they going to talk about 5-8 or are they going to talk about <laughs> Hootie, who brought donuts? You know, 5-8. So, five, eight, so we true. Were, we didn't understand what our job was. We didn't understand what everybody else's job was. We thought, all right, we're going to produce great art and people are going to fall at our feet and want to sell it for us. And you know what? It's not how it works. No, it's it, sadly, it's not. And you know, I mean, I, I can't remember who said it, but I saw this on a documentary years ago. But, you know, somebody said, you know, the difference between the Beatles and Kiss. OK, and I can't remember who it was and, and how this got set up. But they said the Beatles wanted to make the greatest record possible. Kiss wanted to sell as many records as possible. <laughs> So I, I don't know which one is the winning strategy. You, you know what I'm saying? Because not everybody can release the, the friggin' White Album, man. You know? Yeah, I say cross the streams and BREM. Be the nicest band that sells the most records. Yeah. But, you know, so many bands don't do that. Because for somebody that's never played in a band, it, it's impossible for you, for me, for anybody to explain this. But, you know, in my case, there were five members in the band. It was a five-way marriage. With it's always the, a five-way marriage, four-way marriage, three-way marriage. That's, it, you, you, it's give and take. And the thing is, is if one person says no, you gotta, everybody's got to say no. Right. And, and, but you, know? you have that, that constant, you know, interagency, uh, you know, bickering that goes on. Like, you know, who, who wrote more of this song? You know, are we sharing the publishing five ways or is it, you know, the singer and the guitarist get 80 percent and the rest of us split the 20 percent? I mean, everything was a discussion. And yeah, especially you're if you're in the wheel every day. 
Right. And if you're living in a small metal box with those people, (laughs) you know, in our case, it was, you know, I think it was a 1990 Dodge Caravan or Plymouth Voyager or something like that. But it was a minivan and we were living in that damn thing together. You know what? If you open your mouth the wrong way towards me on a good day, it's probably going to rub me a little bit. And then you then you throw in, you know, alcoholism, possible Mm -hmm. drug abuse. Holy shit, man. That's a powder keg just waiting to blow up at all times. I love the I love the term creative differences because it carries so much weight. Like it does a lot of heavy lifting. Because you and I both know that when a band breaks up because they had, quote, creative differences, like <laughs> that discussion is really about the fact that they just hated each other. at the end. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Creative the, differences is a nice way to say the bass player is a dick all the time. Right. <laughs> you know, the myth that almost killed me uh, in that first decade of 5-8 was that it was supposed to be fun all the time. And it's not fun all the time. Uh and yeah, it beats going to a day job. Don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining, but there are days when it's the hardest job in the world because yeah. there's no rule book or playbook or plan that you can follow. We thought we're going to duplicate REM's path to success. We're going to play everywhere. And that's what we did. But you know, the stars didn't align for us like it did for REM. And I was, I played with Mike Mills and we were having this conversation one day and I said, I just don't think the five eight was as good a band as REM, and he whipped around. He was like, you know, number one, those are just stupid comparisons to make because, like, there's no way to quantify. Like, you know, five eight had, you know, four hundred and fifty tons of good, whereas REM had seven hundred tons of good. Like, there's no way to measure that. But it really is about timing and luck, and and you know, you could say yes. 5-8 flirted with, quote, the big time. It came very close to becoming like a, a, a band on the cover of Rolling Stone or Spin Magazine. Yeah. But I, I'm super grateful for everything that we did have. And I don't have any real regrets because I was like a little bit of a monster uh, in that first decade of 5-8. You know, I was out of control in a lot of ways. And if I'd been handed a big pile of cash... <laughs> man it's just fortunate i was on a short leash with the amount of like powder drugs i was able to buy you know? <laughs> well you know um I, you said we kind of dodged a bullet and yeah I, I i i say that to people all the time as well you know i mean funnel got together and did our first gig in like eight years this time last year you know, it was almost a year ago to the day. I, th- I think it's, you know, a year and a week ago. We we did a show first time in eight years and like the whole world showed up for that. And it was great. Yeah. And yeah. I heard at least 200 times that night, man, it's a shame you guys didn't make it. And I kept thinking to myself as somebody that's fairly early in my sobriety in the grand scheme of things, mm-hmm. you know, I thought to myself, God, had we made it, I would have come home in a bag for sure. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, so yeah, it's, um, you know, a, a lot of young musicians think if I just get a record deal, all my problems will be over. And I've said this so many times, <laughs> that's exactly when the problems begin, because God, now yes. you've got 
accountants and and the meters running, so to speak. You owe somebody else money. Right. And they could start fucking with your vision. They could start saying things. I don't hear a single. You know? <laughs> It'd be Which, cool if you guys could wear leather pants, you know? Right. But, you know, that guy just spent half a million dollars so that you can make a record. So if he says, put on some leather pants, you're like, okay, like calfskin or <laughs> like sheepskin or, you know, whether you yeah. really wanted to wear leather pants in your entire life or not. Now the man who wrote the big check is like, leather pants, motherfucker, put them on. You that's know? right. That's right. I, and, and you become beholden to that corporate entity that's trying to pay the shareholders at the end of the yep. quarter. And totally. It's bad. Um, yeah. You know, not to... I don't want to abruptly transition this conversation, but you know, okay. I, I want to, I want to be respectful of your time, but I, I think I feel that it's really important that we talk a little bit about your podcast. Yeah. Um, you know, I have never, to my knowledge, had another podcaster on the show to talk about their podcast. Um, but what you're doing is such a unique take on the music industry and what you're doing is so important with, uh, you know, Crash and Ride podcast that I wanted you to kind of talk to me about the decision to start the podcast. What was the catalyst for it? And, and tell my listeners what your podcast is trying to tackle with each episode. Well, so the Crash and Ride podcast is a long form interview podcast where I talk to musicians who struggle with anxiety, depression, addiction or trauma. Because, I mean, the, the the real story, like, you know, I can tell you that, oh, yeah, I've always wanted to do this lofty thing, uh, but it's not true. Like, the truth is, is that I have two other drummers in my life who I love as much as I love the breath of my own lungs. And they're millennial, a little younger than me. And they're both struggling with depression. And, you know, the one thing I've learned through the course of getting better myself from my own battles with depression and anxiety and trauma is that I don't believe in advice. I think that when people give advice, they're trying to, they're either talking to their past or future selves, or they're trying to control your behavior. But I, I just don't like when someone says to me, you know what I think you should do. I just stop listening <laughs> Par partially because I'm hard headed, but also because I had someone in my life from the very beginning who was always telling me what to do and it really didn't have anything to do with what was good for me. So I believe that people should share their experience, strength and hope, not advice. Yeah. And so rather than go to these two people I loved so much, I was so worried for, and I still worry a little bit because, you know, we're not in a, a place where people just bounce out of depression just as a society right now. I thought I'm going to assemble a chorus of voices that says, this is what it was like. This is what happened. This is what it's like now. So they could like have that vision for a path out the same way that everybody saw, oh, the B-52s bought some guitars, bought a decent set of drums, went to New York and became world famous. Like I wanted them to see that it was possible and know that it could get better because man, when you're down in that hole, when you're depressed and you're struggling, <laughs> It just feels like there are no happy days left in your life. And I, I, that's how people end up like smoking a 38. Like they feel like there's no good days left and there's no reason to keep going. And I, I've just, from my own experience, I know that it gets better. Yeah. 
Man, it's, you know, I get, <clears throat> I get choked up when you say that because I was there once, you know what I mean? Yeah. And just like, it, it took me so long and, you know, now I, I, you know, I waste a lot of my energy. I feel like regretful for all the, the stuff I screwed up, you know, mm-hmm. and and that's a waste of time. And I know that, but you can't help but go, man, you know, I, you know, in my case, I was an alcoholic and, Mm -hmm. you know, I felt like there was nothing good left. Like, you know, yeah, there, there may be a good day out there, but I'm going to spend half that day down in pints of Guinness. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just such a, Man, if you've never been there, it's hard to put into words, but it's just like you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like you can be having the best day ever, like everything's going perfect. But the whole day you're like, I'm just waiting for like a gorilla to jump out of the tree and rip my head off. You, for you know, me, it was just I'm waiting for an opportunity to fuck this up and hurt somebody. Like that <laughs> right, was right. The pattern that I I kept finding ways to like just wreck other people's lives because I was a human tornado and I, and I just became in my own mind this like basically I was the other shoe and I was going to drop on somebody else's day and ruin it but you know if, uh, one of the wisest people I know said to me one time you know man guilt is trying to control the past and anxiety is trying to control the future yeah man that's, <laughs> I was that's, just like whoa uh, okay I'm going to think about that. <laughs> you know? it's, and when I it's, start to have like deep regrets, if there's an amends I need to make, I try to make it as soon as possible. If it's like, you know, except when to do so it would injure them or others. Um, but if, uh, if I can't, man, I just have to turn it over and let, let go of it, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the sharing the, the experience, strength and hope um, is, it is a very powerful tool. And when I listen to your show, the the thing that I'm overcome with, no matter who you're talking to on the show, the, the thing that, that overwhelms me is this is not scripted. This is, you know, it, this <laughs> no. is not reality TV, you know, quote unquote reality TV. Mm-hmm. You know, these are, you know, two human beings, you know, sharing their souls. And it's amazing to me that you can get people to open up that way to you for the whole world to listen to. And, you know, I said to you, just think of this interview as a, as a cool hour long drum hang, and we're just going to let everybody listen to it Mm -hmm. to apply my logic to your show. It's like, just talk about all the worst shit in your life for an hour (laughs) and we'll let everybody listen to it. You know what I mean? I don't know why I'm so lucky that people are willing to open up to me so much, but there's a couple of early episodes, episode five uh, with a a friend of mine, Grant Curry, who is a bass player at Pleasure Club. It has a new thing going too that I'll be talking about on my show as soon as they put anything out. But um, him, uh, uh, my friend Evan Rowe, Dave Pajo from Slint just a few weeks ago. Like those guys just like sat down in front of a microphone and just opened a vein 
and I was just like, man, I have to, I have to respect this moment so much because it's not something that people do every day. And it's not something I, I will ever take lightly. The amount of trust people show me on my show sometimes I just find astonishing. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's, it's such a cool show. You know, I'm encouraging all of my listeners, you know, go find the Crash and Ride podcast, subscribe, thumbs up, all, you know, all the stuff that I ask you to do every week for this show. Do that for Patrick's show, because if, you know, share it with a friend, if it can help anybody, it's it's really important. I mean, I, it's, it's really, really important. So um, I'm going to send all my folks your way as much as I possibly can, because it is such a powerful interview. And, you know, everybody that listens to this show, I, I make the assumption is a musician. And yeah. these are not isolated cases amongst musicians. We all have some sort of baggage that we got to deal with. Well, man, and, like... The tool of our trade is emotion. Right. Like music is just emotion made concrete. And so just the act of writing together is a, a, a high level of emotional vulnerability. Number one, normal people probably aren't cut out for that. So first of all, like we're stepping into the ring a little different. But beyond that, now you move this incredibly vulnerable, volatile, emotional thing into the public sphere where the guy who hasn't kissed a girl in 30 years who writes for the local alternative weekly can be like, this sucks. I hate it. Like, <laughs> you know, like there's some guy with like dandruff on his leather trench coat who writes for the local punk rock fanzine. And he's going to be like, I feel like this is inauthentic. Like, yeah, nice sword collection, asshole. You know, like it's like but, the it's like the first guy that listened to our record in '98 and said they sound just like Matchbox Twenty. I I almost hung myself that day, right? Because you you've made yourself vulnerable, and <laughs> and like there are people out there for whom there's a tremendous amount of like envy that you're even in that position, and they're looking for any opportunity to tear you down. Yeah. For that. Yeah. And yeah, you know, add to that like, you know, 150 days on the road where you're getting like four to four and a half hours of sleep a night and you're broke and you're already like ready to choke your bass player with a shoelace when he's trying to sleep. Like um <laughs> just the level of anxiety and depression that kind of pops up in that environment is is uh I mean it's it, it, it depressed musicians are like you can't swing a dead cat without hitting three of them, you know. Um, yeah. So I feel like, like when I first told my dad, I'm doing this podcast where I talk to musicians who struggle with anxiety and depression. He was like, are you going to, do you think, are there enough, like, you're going to be able to find enough guests? I'm like, dad. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true military man, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, my dad's been depressed one time in his entire life. And uh, that's a crazy story. But he, he uh he had two different doctors prescribe two different medications and he called me at like one o'clock in the morning like, what is happening? I feel so weird. I've never been sad like this in my life. And I was like, okay, just let's just start at the beginning. <laughs> What's going on? He's like, well, I had a, had a little minor outpatient operation and I've got the flu. So one doctor gave me pain meds and one doctor gave me cough medicine. I was like, okay, pick one. 
<laughs> you know, you can't do both of those. But uh, uh, yeah, that's, no, that's, that's uh, that's a, I'm in a target rich environment. Like I will always have musicians to talk to. And I just hope, like I have two rules. Like I, every musician who comes on my show, I send them an MP3 before it ever airs. And I go, listen to this, make sure there's nothing in there you want to take out. Because I never want anybody to come on my show and say something and then regret having been on the show. Yeah. You know? Also, the other thing is I never want anybody to come on my show and feel judged. So there's certain people, you know, who will never be on my show because I hate them. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> right. That's and I don't fair. ever want anybody to come on the show and be like, wow, I hope he doesn't rake me over the coals like he did that one dude, you know? So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, if you've heard anybody on my show, I, I, I'm a fan, you know, like there's a music to other people's lives that I find incredibly inspiring. And when they get on a microphone, I'm like, sing your song, man, tell your truth, like be here now. And and rem- <laughs> when I used to have people at my house before COVID, you know, right before we sat down, if they were coffee drinkers, I'd hand them a double espresso. And right before I hit record, I'd say, hey, remember, you may be tempted to protect someone in your background who was an abuser or someone who was unkind to you but if you tell the truth you might save a life okay welcome to crash and ride <laughs> oh man that, yeah no doubt that's yeah no no it's pressure so, right right but i mean you know the combination of you know 40 milligrams of caffeine and and the big flashing red light people tell the truth and it's it's been an amazing ride yeah man well it's just a it's a great show i mean truly it is and I think it's so important, you know, and I I just, I always, you know, the the problem with drunks is the world revolves around them, right? So I'm still, Mm -hmm. you know, a drunk. I haven't had a drink in almost three years, but I, I always apply everything to me. And I think to myself, gosh, I probably could have stopped drinking earlier had I heard all this stuff, had I read all this stuff. And, you know, I just, but I wasn't seeking it out either. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was immune to the counsel of others when I was using it. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know. That's what my grandma used to say. You can't tell that boy nothing. uh Uh-huh. That's right. That's right. Until until you can. And then the boy's willing to learn fast, hopefully. Yeah. Well, you know, you get that point where you're like, okay, I, I give up. I don't know how to live my life. Tell me. Tell me how to live. Yeah. I pretty much. That, yeah, I don't do that on my show, by the way. Once again, I'm not a big advice guy, but I'll tell you what my experience was like, or I'll listen to yours. I can yeah. tell you that I, I, I can say for certain that there was one person who heard the first episode of the show, and because he was a 5'8 fan, and was like, I always say like someone's listening on the radio, but nobody listens on radios, but he was metaphorically grabbing his radio going, no, no. I thought I was the only person who felt this way. Yeah. And that rec- that first episode came out as I was driving to South by Southwest. Like I posted it from like a Shoney's or something near the Wi-Fi. And this guy like showed up at a, at a five, eight show at South by Southwest in 2019 and said, uh, Hey, um, I wanted to make a, a, a donation to your podcast. And uh, I was like, I don't, I got a Patreon page. You can do like a five or $10 like recurring. He was like, no, no, I, I, I want to, 
I want to give you like money now. I don't want to fuck with that. And I was like, okay, uh, well, let me just set up a PayPal. He's like, no, take this. And he, he handed me $500 in cash. Just boom. Wow. Like, yeah. And then, you know, like that's what started happening. People were just like, it's been, it's been a ride, man. Like I've been okay during quarantine because people support the podcast, both through the Patreon page and through advertising, but that's amazing, man. I've got some kind of super donors who, who throw down because so that same guy, you know, struggled his whole life, thought he was the only one felt really alone in his head and really sad all the time and anxious all the time. And he started like a course of SSRIs, which didn't really work. And, 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 and I think he had messed with that a little bit in the past, which is given up and just thought I'm going to white knuckle my way through this because none of that works for me. And then I had my friend Evan Rowe on. I think that's episode 10. And he talked up and his, that's a dark episode, man. For the first two thirds of the episode, I thought this guy's using my podcast as a suicide note. He's going to go home and kill himself. And I was actually like thinking I have to dial 911 surreptitiously in the middle of this interview because this guy is in such a dark place. Because he was talking about how SSRIs had failed him and talk therapy had failed him. And he had been doing electroconvulsive therapy where they like, put, you know, like one flew with a cuckoo's nest where they like put the electrodes on your body and shock the hell out of you trying to squeeze just a little bit of serotonin like out of your cerebral cortex. Mm-hmm. And it had stopped working. And that was literally like destroying his body. And it, but it was the only thing that was keeping him going and it had stopped working. And I thought, oh God. This is going to have the darkest ending. And then he said, but you know, there's a, there's an experimental trial thing happening at Duke university. I think it is in their outpatient thing where they do, um, an infusion using ketamine, which is, you know, is a veterinary tranquilizer that's been used as a club drug. Yeah. But it's titrated at such a mild dose that you're not actually intoxicated, but it alleviated all of his suicidal ideation after the first treatment. Wow. And he kept going back and like his life became normal, but it's expensive to go sit in like what is basically this, this sort of like one of these chemotherapy places where they put a needle in your arm and put an IV bag up and they start the drip. And so he was talking about that. Well, this guy, the guy who was my first like mega donor, Heard that, went to his doctor, said, I want to do this ketamine thing. And the doctor was like, well, you know, we don't have a clinic here in Austin where you can go get the IV, but we're doing a nasal spray now. So let's try that. Same results to do the ketamine nasal spray. And so like saved a life, you know, like these two guys. And then, you know, my friend Evan eventually moved to the nasal spray and is it's just like it's it's helping like the fact that my podcast is helping people blows my mind but like you know quarantine happened man i fell off for like two months i didn't put out any episodes because i was just like well, how do i do this how do i how do i interview people if i can't have them in my home how do i have these frank conversations where i drop f-bombs and talk about like drug use when my daughter's here 24 hours a day. She's only 10, you know? Um, yeah. And I, I, but people started texting me like, Hey man, could sure, could sure use a crash and ride episode right about now. Like, uh-huh. I need to, I need to know that I'm not the only one who's at the bottom of this like quarantine crater. And so 
and I shook off the torpor and like started doing this over the phone. And um, I'm back, man. I'm doing two episodes this week. I'll probably do two next week. So that's great, man. I mean, it's yeah, I, it's just it's fantastic. Um, on the on the drumming front, I mean, obviously nobody can go, you know, really do too much right now, but. Mm-hmm. You know, you said you were supposed to be in Europe right now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if all this breaks free, you know, I mean, what what's on the horizon for you? Are you making any plans or are you just kind of playing it, you know, one day at a time and figure out where we're at? Well, last year, you know, I was out with Mike Mills and Chuck Lavelle. Mike Mills, of course, bass player of R.E.M. Chuck Lavelle is fucking Chuck Lavelle, you know, Rolling Stones, yep. all my brothers. Um, I don't know if that... Uh, we did a string of dates a couple of weeks. I don't know if that's going to become a regular thing or not. Uh, I don't know if it does, if I'm going to be part of that band. Cause it was just, it was a, it was a, it was a contract thing and I had a really good time, but I'm not really like an Almond brothers kind of drummer. And the songs are really hard for me. Um, there may be a guy out there who's more suited for that job. So I don't know. That's a big question mark. Five, eight, you know, we're going to continue to play. We've started writing a new record. Pinky Doodle Poodle. God, I hope we get some time on the road before their visa expires again. Or I hope that they find somebody in Miriam so they can stay in the States or whatever. You know? um, <laughs> well, because they're such, such a great rock and roll band. They're like one of the greatest rock and roll bands I've ever seen. And there's not a rock and roll scene in Japan. So when they're there, like I think George works at a guitar shop and Yuria, I don't know what she does. I think she does some... Um, I think she does some acting and writes music for commercials and stuff. But like when they're here, they're this rock and roll powerhouse, like this almost like, you know, the sixties had all the R and B reviews where like it was a show. Yeah, like, sure. Yeah. You'd see Sam and Dave and, and Booker T and the MGs and maybe like Aretha or, or, or Al Green or something like on one bill. And it would be this like, a show where it would build to this big climax and like, that's like a pinky doodle poodle show. Like George and Yudia have studied the great performances of James Brown and, and, you know, great rock bands like ACDC and, and, um, and sweet. And, you know, George loves that seventies rocks, like what my ex-girlfriend used to call butt rock. Um, and, man, he can, he can, he's just the greatest, like we played one show in Nashville and he got into guitar player magazine, like overnight, bam, he's wow. that good. So, yeah. So I don't know, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm making a lot of new relationships with, with crash and ride. I've, 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 uh, I've met a lot of great musicians and there's been some like, Hey, we should do something, you know? So there may be like, you know, a whole band full of sad dudes out on the road at some point. <laughs> um, oh man, that's, that's like a, funny. A, a, a crash and ride all stars. Uh, uh, you know, I talked about my plan for South by Southwest this year was to do a showcase with all bands who had at least one member who'd been on crash and ride. And that would have been an incredible showcase. Sure. Um, it would. Yeah, man. I mean, you've had, had some, a, a who's who man. It's it, unbelievable. So if, if you do put together something, you know, I, I'm pretty good drum tech. I mean, I can tune really yeah. well. So oh, you know, you're just, in. Yeah. Just keep Actually, me in. What I need is someone to hang out and enjoy music. Like, are you thinking like just, oh, you mean to tour with us? Yeah. That'd be amazing. 
Yeah, um, man, I'll, I'll I'll polish your your kit up every day, have them tuned up, <laughs> man. You don't have to do anything; it'll be great. Man, I can't believe we've talked for almost an hour, and we haven't even talked about snare drums yet. I, I know. Well, see, that's the cool thing about the drum shuffle is mm-hmm. I have people back all the time. You know, um, I, it, hell, I had Kevin Charney on twice now, and he's Kevin oh, Charney. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> amazing drummer. He's amazing a amazing gr- drummer. Great guy. Let me tell you what it's like to record, because I've also been an audio engineer and had a studio for a while. And Kevin Charney is the most frustrating drummer to record in the world because his bands always show up and do everything in one take. How do studios charge? Yeah, by the by hour. By the hour. Yeah. Right. And they're in and out in like two hours. It's like it's almost not even worth it. You know, that guy yeah. is such a professional. Man, man he, I want to brag about my main kit just a little bit. Yeah, please, man. Tell, tell, tell us about it. I'm, I'm guessing it's going to be some quality vintage stuff. Man, so I've always been a vintage guy uh, because I couldn't afford new. You know, like back in the 90s, they were just still old drums. And so I, my first vintage <laughs> kit was this set of uh, early 50s Radio Kings I picked up at a music store, Highland Music in Cleveland, Ohio. We, we played with a band called Cop Shoot Cop which is a New York City noise rock band. The next day I walked into this music store in Cleveland and saw a bunch of like stag percussion and uh, all that sort of import stuff that was all down on the floor, but up on a shelf, like shoved to the back, I saw some kind of like slightly yellowed white marine pearl. And I was like, hey, buddy, uh, I want to see that kit. He's like, hey, come back tomorrow. Drum guy's not sick today. And I was like, man, I'm going to be in Youngstown in five hours. So uh, I see that kit now or I never see it. He pulled it down. And as he was pulling it down, I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And it was 22, 13, 16, and 14 by 6 Radio King snare drum. And uh, I was like, uh, man, what do, you, what do you take for these? And he goes, I don't know. What do these things cost? And there was a set of like stag percussion or jugs or one of those like Chinese import kits <laughs> sitting there marked 295. And he said, I don't know. Give me 250. And like my bass, my bass player almost barked in shock. (laughs) And I just shot my elbow into his ribs. And I was like, I don't know, man. These drums are really old. Like I could give you 200. So I got that first vintage kit for 200. And I kept that kit for, I toured the rest of the 90s on that kit and into the 2000s. But then... Then I played some punk rock gigs and a lot of beer got thrown and I thought, I don't want to destroy this kit. And yeah. then I was out kind of hunting for another kit and drove by a church yard sale and had like my, my finished drum radar started tingling and I pulled in and there was a set of blue sparkle Cleveland Rogers for 20 bucks. Oh my God. 12, 16 with a power tone, a gold blue sparkle snare. Played that for a few years, but now a few years ago, a buddy of mine in San Francisco was like, hey, you like these old Ludwigs, right? And it was a set of the Thermogloss, early 70s, maple interior, clear interior kit. And I was like, yes, yes, I like those a lot. And um, so he he picked it up off Craigslist and shipped it to me. And um, as it was on its way across the country, the drummer from the Archers of Loaf contacted me. He had a stainless steel Ludwig kit. And I was playing in like the loudest noise rock band in America at that point, a band called the powder room. And so I was like, he, and he was selling the stainless kit. So short story long, 
I sold the Thermoglass kit before I'd ever played it. Like I called a buddy, there's a studio here. He had a house kit, another three ply little bit kit, but it was the Cortex wrapped butcher block kit. And I said, I have your new house drum kit on its way to my house right now because I got to pay Mark from Archer's Loaf for the stainless kit. And he was like, I don't need a kit. I've got a kit. I was like, I don't think you understand. And gave him the hard sell. The box came to my house. I took it to his studio. We unpacked it there, put the heads on it, tuned it up, hit it a few times. He bought it. I walked away, bought the stainless kit. And then immediately the powder room broke up. (laughs) (laughs) So so I I didn't dig the stainless Ludwig's. You know, like yeah. they were incredibly loud, but I, I, the thing I was looking for wasn't there. And then we bought a house really cheap and it had a really shitty electric stove and I don't know how to cook on electric. So I bought a stainless steel gas stove and stole the stainless steel little bit kit to pay for it. And then I went to that dude's studio and played that thermocloss kit. And I thought, I have made a terrible mistake. Yeah, the one that got away. I was like, sell me this kit. He was like, no way. I was like, I'll pay you more than you paid for it. I know what you paid for it. He's like, this is my cold dead hands kit. You're never getting this thermogloss kit from me. I don't know if you've ever played a set of thermogloss Ludwigs. They came in two finishes, a sort of blonde maple and then a fake walnut, which is really beautiful as it ages in. It kind of wears through a little bit and it gets this kind of, it almost looks like a tobacco sunburst guitar that's been a relic. It's so beautiful. But this was the blonde maple Thermogloss kit. It's the thinnest finish Ludwig ever put on a set of drums, and they sound unbelievable. The everything you want from three ply Ludwig's, but like a wide open shell, no wrap. Like, and I played that kit on a session that, and was just like, I have to have these drums. And he was like, No, so do I. And they're mine, so fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> so I put out an APB to all my dudes that hunt vintage drum kits, and another buddy of mine. Uh, popped up with a 24, 12, 13, 16 Ludwig Thermogloss kit, three ply, early 70s. Nice. Gave me a great deal on it. And uh, I sent the toms out to Chris Hewer at Hewer Drumworks in Los Angeles to do all the um, the edges for me because they sure. were, you know, 70s drums. Somebody at some point played them with no bottom heads and they banged against the lugs on the kick drum. You know what happens. Oh, sure. But they came back, and those toms sound almost like piano keys. They're so bell-like and clear and perfect. And uh, and I play that kit 90% of the gigs I play, but every now and then if I'm going to do like a string of punk rock shows, like where I'm playing and like, let's put these pool tables back so we can have a rock show, you know, that kind of thing where yeah. I, I don't know where we're going to be staying, if it's going to be secure. Um, I, I, if I lost that Thermoglass kit, I would... It, it, That'd be the end of the world. So my friend, Jake Kreger, who was the first guest on Crash and Ride, uh, and who also is kind of the de facto producer of the show, lives in a tiny apartment in Alexandria. And he had a set of three-ply early 70s, black Cortex Ludwigs, just the kick of the floor, 18-inch floor, 24-inch kick. And you know, man, the 24-inch three-ply Ludwig kick drum is like unobtainium. Like they're impossible to find. Yep. Um, and now I have three of them, but that's a whole other story. But um. He said, look, I can't keep this kit. I'll sell it to you cheap. We made a deal. And then I just filled out the kit. So now I have this black Cortex kit. And that Cortex, man, it's bulletproof. Like you could throw beer at it all day long. Singer can jump on it. Uh, it can get, I mean, I would never tour without cases, but you know, it's durable stuff. That and is, uh, got, that's an embarrassment of riches right there, man. Man, 
I haven't even gotten into my round badge kit, but that's a whole other, <laughs> that'll be when I come back. Well, so but, I, the, the burning question for me, you know, you, you had yeah. a, a stainless kit and, you know, I've played on one of those a, a couple of times, but the thing that stuck out to me with the stainless kit, not only how loud they are, but man, you've got to have a forklift to move those things around. They're heavy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm I mean, 6'1 and 220 uh, when I'm healthy. You know, yeah. I'm a, I mean, I, I'm a big dude. So, yeah. I, I just wouldn't want to, you know, have to haul those things around. You know, some of these clubs that have, you know, uh, you're playing on the second floor, you know, up the stairs. Uh, man, no way with that kit. No way. Yeah. I mean, I've, uh, you know, I use those SKB cases with the, um, they replace the foam lining with almost like a, like a, almost like a little pillow. Have you, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what that lining's called, but I love it because, you know, the foam eventually breaks down in those cases. And then you're like, like, you know, trying to blow like lint off your yeah. drums every time you unpack them. Um, but those cases are heavy and you put a 24 inch kick drum in the case they have for a 24 inch even if it's like three ply, like light as air, like it weighs as much. It's like dragging your dead grandma in and out of a club every night. You know? <laughs> right. So you put a 24 inch stainless kick drum in there. It, yeah. It's brutal. Yeah. I mean, that's some real heft, but I mean, yeah. you know, the, the vintage thing, I mean, we, what we need to do is we need to get you back. Um, you know, Charney and I are threatening to get with Josh Touchton from Ludwig, who is a known vintage drum geek, uh, you know, like mm -hmm. all of us. Uh, we, we've been talking about doing a round table where it's just like, y y it'll be pure comedy, I'm sure, but it'll be like, yeah. you know, draw a, a subject out of a hat and then everybody debate it for 10 minutes, right? Like a- Oh man, I would love that. Like the lightning round of Jeopardy or something. I don't know, but we've been talking mm -hmm. about this for- I can't tell you how long we're, we're just going to have to include you on that. So, I mean, the thing is, is that I don't think there's a single thing about drums that I disagree with Kevin Charney about. Uh, well, that now, come on now. I, you I know. mean, maybe like he had a real affection for heads other than Remo for a long time. Yeah. Um, and I've just always used coded Remo either reverse dot, emperor or ambassador pretty much exclusively and uh i could never get the hang of other i did one time i so i i had a kit that was oversized you know that happens with vintage drums a lot and um i got some of those aquarians yeah the uh uh i guess they're called not modern vintage but they've got modern vintage and something vintage but I, I can't remember and put it on a 14 by 6 uh, Gretsch snare drum I had and it was just the most ridiculously great snare drum sound fucking all time and a part of me is like should I start messing with Aquarian heads because that was such a great sounding but I it's such a thin crisp head and I, I hit like an orangutan um, and so I dented the head pretty bad and just kind of went right back to Emperor's but that that snare sound has always kind of haunted me. I thought if I end up doing a record with someone like Butch Vig or Brad Wood or Ed Stasium again, I'll probably bring six of those Aquarian modern <laughs> right on. and just burn through them, you know, because they sound so good. Well, I, you know, I, I mean, my years of experimentation with heads, you know, I, I'm a cheap bastard. I don't like to replace heads until I have mm -hmm. to replace heads. You know what I mean? Like, no, I do. 
I've got some snare drums that have had the same head on for like five years now. You know, if I, if how many, how many kits do you own? Uh, I think I've got four now. Yeah, that's right. I've got, I've got four kits, you know, one is, you know, the A kit, the one I take out and play shows with and all that. Then Mm -hmm. I've got, you know, uh, the first kit I ever owned, it's still sitting out at the, at at my buddy's studio and it's, he kind of uses it as house kit then I've got a Ludwig mm-hmm. kit that I keep here at the house, um, you know, and then then I've got like the super uber duber special kit that, you know, usually just case queens, you know, I'll pull them out mm-hmm. for sessions occasionally. But um, I, case queen. I, I like I, yeah, I just I just don't like changing heads. I, I, well, I, I was feel just, what I was going to say is so you got four kits, right? Yeah. And it, it takes if you do top and bottom, front and back on the kick drum heads, that's about two fifty. Maybe yeah, a little shy at two hundred fifty bucks. Yeah, that's a thousand dollars to change all those heads in one go. Yeah, man, that's not it, that's that's a non-trivial amount of money for a working musician. That that is correct, but you know, so I just don't do it as often as I should. Probably, if I haven't dished out, divoted the head, you know, if the coating is still on there, I'm good with it. And I was mm-hmm. always a Remo guy, but when I switched to coated heads, right when I started really mm-hmm. liking the coated heads the Remo coating comes off quick for me. And I don't know if it's how I play or if it's the sticks I use or what, but, you know, I'd put a coated ambassador uh, on a snare drum and all the coating mm-hmm. would be gone in a month, you know? And you know, that, that used to happen to me too, but it hasn't happened in the last few years. And I'm wondering if they changed the formulation at some point. Yeah. And maybe I need to try them again, but you know, I switched over to Evans and you know, I'm not endorsed by, by anybody, you know, as far as Mm -hmm. heads are concerned. Um, and I've really had good luck with the Evans holding up for a long, long time. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I, and I'm one of those guys, I'm really anal retentive. So I keep a head library, you know, in my spot, you know, so like I've got an extra of everything I could possibly need and if I pull one out and use it, I order that head, right? Just to right, replace it right. in my library. So I'm always prepared, sure. um, you know, and, and I've just had a lot of good luck with them, but maybe I should try the Remo again. I don't know. You know, it's- When you're touring, do you carry an extra kick drum head with you? Typically not um, because, you know, I can, I can honestly say to you, I have only busted one kick drum head in a show in my life. And we're talking 30 years of playing and you know, one a year. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I just, I, I typically don't because you, if you do, you duct tape it, you gaff tape it and you go buy one the next day. Right. Yeah. I got caught out one time on pinky doodle poodle tour. Uh, we were playing with a band called the Molise, another Japanese band in Buffalo. And I used the red ball wooden beater with a, um, uh, uh, slam patch, a uh, Fallon patch, uh, on the batter side of the kick drum head. But even that will eventually give way when you're giving it the kind of pounding that, yeah. that, that kick drum gets. And, um, it broke in the middle of the Molises set. I felt terrible, but I always have in my case, I have an extra head because nothing will stop a rock show like a broken kick drum. <laughs> That's right. And so I've always got another 
And it's not always identical. Sometimes it's just another like head that I had around that's the right size just so I can get to the end of the show. I always have a drop snare on stage. I have an extra snare and I always have an extra kick drum pedal. Because if I can do, I can limp through a show with a crack cymbal. I can limp through a show with a broken tom head. But um, you can't really play without a snare, a kick, yep. and a kick pedal. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, typically on this show, I know you're not a fan of advice, but we typically ask our guests for a good piece of advice. But so let's let's you and I agree that the piece of advice is when you go play a gig, have an extra kick drum pedal with you Mm -hmm. and have an extra snare with you, because if you bust your snare drum head, you do not you you can't say, hey, guys, give me eight minutes. Right. You, you just can't do it, you know? Right. So, I'm willing to do it if I bust a kick drum head. I'll be like, just, you know, do an acoustic song or something. <coughs> but to yeah. be able to just reach down, grab another snare drum. And I'm, man, I've got an embarrassment of riches when it comes to snare drums. You know, I've got a, I've got a six and a half Black Beauty, six and a half Hammered Bronze. And either one of those, I'll play a show on. So that's my like number one and number two. And it just depends on what mood I'm on this week, which one's on the snare stand first. But, you know, I just... It's unbeatable. Those two snare drums could do just about anything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a huge Ludwig fan too. You know, I mean, I've got Supras, I've got, you know, Copper Phonics, I've got Black Beauties, you know, I I mean, and any of them are great. You know, my A is typically the Copper Phonic. I just love Mm -hmm. it. It has all the best qualities of a Supra and a Black Beauty and and none of the, none of the bad ones in, in my opinion, you know. Here's my secret weapon. And this is something that I do on a lot of sessions that are not like heavy rock sessions, but anything where I need like a muscle shoals sound. I watched that muscle shoals documentary front to back five times, like freeze framing every shot of Roger Hawkins. Yeah. Until I finally saw it. He plays a five inch Supra with a calfskin head. I saw the Ludwig white calf logo stamped on the head. And I went hunting through all my stuff until I found a 14-inch caskin head, threw it on my 5-inch Supra. Bam. Instant Aretha Franklin snare. Yeah. Instant. Yeah. So, you, you know, you know I, I have tried to get Roger on this show um, multiple times. And he's kind of a shy guy from what I gather. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Does, doesn't really like talking about himself. But I was told that his hearing now is in such a state he can't really do a phone interview you know which is terribly sad to me but they you know the the folks at the muscle shoals music foundation have said if you if you're going to be in town let us know and we'll try to set that up for you which is really super cool i just Mm -hmm. i haven't had the occasion to be back in muscle shoals since i've started this show he's such a brilliant drummer yeah i've heard that it's I've heard that his tinnitus is severe enough that... Do you say tinnitus or tinnitus? I've always said tinnitus. Me too. I think that might be the redneck way of saying it. I've well, had several guests it fits recently me then. <laughs> tinnitus. Yeah, I just... I mean, you know, I've got so much south in my mouth. Man, I just can't even... You know, I just... I've started saying tinnitus because there's still... You know, you have that thing where you don't want to stick out as the like the country guy, but... I'm the country guy. Yeah, uh, this, I, I am too, man. I, the first 12 years of my life, I lived on a dairy farm, so it doesn't get much more dirt country than that. You, you know what yeah. I'm saying? So, Well, I do. I do. Man, but, uh, uh, right around the corner, Dick Smith, when I was growing up, 
He had 47. It's a small operation, but he had, you know, automatic milkers and he had about 200 acres of grazing. You know, when you're a dairy farmer, you're really a grass farmer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true, too. And yeah. I, I've tried to explain it to folks that don't understand, but um, there is no vacation day. There is no sick no. day when you have cows no. to milk. There's no such thing as a day off in the life of a dairy farmer. No, you don't. You don't. You can't get a pet sitter to come in and hook up those uh, milking machines. You know, <laughs> like that's not how that works. No, you can't take your your sixty Holsteins to the uh, to the kennel for the weekend. You can't <laughs> cannot do it. So, <laughs> man, I, just I, imagine I, pulling up to Pawtropolis with a big old uh, dually with a, r- a right livestock trailer. Like, yeah, those, those yeah. people would be waving you off probably with <laughs> guns, you know, uh-uh, that, that ain't happening here. But, yeah. uh, well, listen, man, on that note, again, I, I do want to be respectful of your time. We've got to have yeah. you back to do this, this again. Great. Yeah. There, I, I mean, enjoyed this, this so much been such a super cool drum hang. Um, I, I'm once again, I'm just going to say for my listeners, um, go check out the Crash and Ride podcast. The website is crashandridepodcast.com. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for doing this. I, I certainly Thanks, appreciate it. And let's do it again real soon, okay? I'm looking forward to it. All right, brother. Have a great evening, man. You too, Jamie. All right, guys and girls, that's going to wrap up episode 114 of the Drum Shuffle podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. We simply cannot do this show without each and every one of you doing so week in and week out. Whatever platform you're using to listen in to this podcast, uh, hit the thumbs up, give it a star rating, a review. The biggest thing we can ask from you is share a link with a friend. That helps us more than you'll ever know, and we sincerely appreciate it. As always, we answer every single email we get here at the Drum Shuffle podcast. The email address is coincidentally the Drum Shuffle podcast at gmail.com. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com, and you can find more information on me over at jamieeds.com. A million and one thanks to Patrick Ferguson for coming on the show. Make sure you check out Crash and Ride podcast. I know he'll appreciate it, and so will I. Next week, I'm going to be joined by the great Daphnis Prieto uh, to come on and talk about his new record. It's fantastic, as always, so you don't want to miss that. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. 